Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Consensual non-monogamy is a relationship style in which all of the partners explicitly agree that having more than one sexual and or romantic partner at the same time is acceptable. This can take a lot of different forms, from polyamory, to swinging, to cuckolding, to being monogamish, to borrow a term from my friend Dan Savage. Survey studies pretty reliably find that about 1 in 20 people say they're currently in some type of sexually open relationship, but it's closer to 1 in 5 who say that they've ever had one. And for context, if 20% of the U.S. population is consensually non-monogamous, that would be roughly the equivalent of the entire populations of California and Texas combined, which is a heck of a lot of people. However, research, data, and information on consensual non-monogamy is still pretty limited, and oftentimes it's not addressed at all in psychology training programs. So we're going to be talking all about consensual non-monogamy today. We're going to explore what attitudes towards sexually open relationships currently look like, how to know if consensual non-monogamy is right for you, tips for navigating these relationships, how to identify and lean into your own strengths in order to bolster your relationships, and much more. I am joined by Dr. Michelle Vaughn, an associate professor in the School of Professional Psychology at Wright State University. She trains health providers in sex, gender, and relationship-affirming practices, and conducts research on LGBTQ plus issues and consensual non-monogamy. She is the co-editor of the soon-to-be-released Handbook of Consensual Non-Monogamy. This is going to be an amazing conversation, so stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. It's a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. It's great to be here. I'm excited. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of sex therapy and research. So what drew you to this area? It really started with I had the opportunity to take a class in sex therapy as a graduate student, which not a lot of folks have, as well as another class in, at that point, LGB affirming therapy. <laughs> 
I was really interested and intrigued. I didn't know what I would do with it. And for a long time, when I went the academic route, I didn't have a clinical practice and I was just teaching undergrads. That started to change around seven years ago. A couple of years after I came out as polyamorous, I was teaching undergrad sexuality courses and basic principles of sex therapy, but not to clinicians, not to folks who were actively using those skills. So when I joined the School of Professional Psychology, I really had the opportunity to connect to all those passions. I teach our, our course that includes sex therapy as well as affirming therapies. And then I had a chance to do some scholarship and be involved in kind of professional domains in APA and in kind of the world of social nonprofits, particularly around polyamory. And so it's been really great to integrate all those in terms of kind of under the heading of sexually stigmatized folks and be able to serve this population as well as a clinician. Well, thank you for sharing that. And there are, unfortunately, a lot of sexually stigmatized folks out there, which is part of the reason why we have this podcast, which is designed to help people better understand diverse sexualities. And oftentimes that includes their own sexuality. And it can be hard to find the right resources to find affirming therapists. And so we appreciate you doing the work that you do because we just know that there's a lot of people who need a lot of help navigating sexuality and relationships and not a lot of great resources out there. So let's talk consensual non-monogamy. Whether you're monogamous or consensually non-monogamous, you might encounter issues or struggles in your romantic life at some point because maintaining any type of relationship can be a challenge. But when people seek help in the form of sex or relationship therapy, it can be a bit harder to do that if you're in some type of sexually open relationship, because this isn't necessarily a part of many clinical training programs. So, Michelle, what's your sense as to how many therapists even have some training in this area? And how does your book fill in the gaps for people who didn't get much training? What's interesting is there's very little scholarship about clinicians training and work around kind of consensual non-monogamy specifically. There's much more about, right, sexual issues and, and pieces like that. There seems to be a real deficit. So the way I see that, right, so I get to train folks who are future psychologists. And then another piece of what I like to do in a professional role is offer trainings, particularly to psychologists usually, but sometimes social workers, marriage and family therapists and counselors. And after about the first year I started offering these trainings, they fill up really quickly. Like people are interested, engaged, really want to expand what they know. That can be locally here in Ohio, but certainly trainings I've given for APA as well is the need seems to be very present. Folks are like, these are my clients and I piece things together and maybe I got something here and there, but very little in their formal training. So they're really excited and kind of thirsty for resources and opportunities for consultation. Yeah, I think the fact that your workshops fill up very quickly is very telling of just how little information there is in a lot of the clinical training programs. I used to work in a counseling psychology PhD program. I was the only social psychologist on staff, and there was actually only one course on relationships and marriage in that entire curriculum. And having just one course on relationships in general is very limiting, but you can imagine how most of that research and information that was presented was based on monogamous relationships, this idea that monogamy is the way that 
you build a successful, happy, healthy relationship. And there's just very little room or space for consensual non-monogamy when that is sort of the dominant training approach. And so in a lot of the courses that I would teach, I would find ways to work consensual non-monogamy into it, as well as other diverse relationships and sexual practices, just because there was so little information on that in many of the other courses in the program. And I'm hopeful that things are changing, but unfortunately, the field tends to progress at a relatively slow rate. And so we often need to find training opportunities that are outside of our established graduate programs in order to kind of fill in the gaps in our knowledge. What I found too is I'm one of those folks who likes to have the most recent articles and update textbooks when there's especially thinking about marginalized populations. And teaching our sex and gender course, which is you know, every two or three years, I could find articles that were super new and thoughtful about some topics to well integrate. But what I found was the resources, the main text I was using to really provide an overview for consensual non-monogamy was well over a decade old, right? And I was like, oh, I wish I had all these things together and not just Let's talk about white upper middle class folks and the picture of the, you know, the photo of the naked feet in the bed and like a very limited perspective on that. And so that kind of set the seed for, uh oh, if I keep looking and I can't find something, oh, do I need to create that? Is anyone else? Surely someone else is creating that. And that kind of led into the book with finding the right people and some amazing collaborators, but also yeah, I kind of want to write a book. And this this seems like a great need. You know, the story of how I wrote my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality, it's kind of similar in the sense that I couldn't find a textbook I was really happy with that covered the information in the way that I wanted it to be covered, that wasn't overly clinical, that was as inclusive as possible. And so it was really sometimes a matter of you have to create the resource yourself if it doesn't exist. I know how much work goes into that, but it's so worth it in the end. So consensual non-monogamy is not a new thing by any stretch of the imagination. This practice has deep roots across time and culture. But in the modern Western world, monogamy has long been the dominant model of how people approach and think about relationships, and consensual non-monogamy has been stigmatized. But this seems to be changing. There are more popular media depictions of consensual non-monogamy. The mainstream media seems to be talking about polyamory all the time. And there's this growing academic and scientific research literature in this area. So, Michelle, I'm curious for your take on what do current attitudes toward consensual non-monogamy look like? And does it seem like things are changing to you? Yeah, well, I have a, I have, <laughs> I have a couple of perspectives that may not capture kind of the broad swath, right? So I am kind of in my island in terms of being surrounded all by psychologists and psychologists in training who come to our program for diversity-focused training. So within that realm and the realm of training other psychologists, I've been pretty surprised at the positive reactions. Of course, if people are signing up for training, they're not coming there because they're forced or required to, right? But by and large, even in thinking about trainees over the course of several years, there's been an effort to kind of incorporate talking about diverse relationships and intimacy in a broad way. And what I find is certainly by a couple of years in, they're like, well, of course, it's just something 
it's just something different. Oh, let me get this under, under understanding of stigma and oppression. I mean, initially there might be like, there, there's been just very small, like, why are we talking about, I got the, why are we talking about this in social psych? I was like social psych for clinicians about bias and the harm it causes and how that shows up in the clinical room. I thought we talked about that. <laughs> but <laughs> Once they have some time and some effort, I've seen a lot of genuine curiosity and openness, particularly among clinicians kind of across, across a, a lot of different disciplines. And so, and in the rest of the world, as somebody who's pretty out and open, again, not a lot of negative response or pushback, but I, I gotta say, again, I'm lucky to live in a neighborhood that's relatively queer, there's economic privileges, there's white privileges, there's the education privileges of really being sheltered from a bit of it. But I'm pretty professionally and personally out. Like if you Google me, you will find all these pieces. And I'm kind of surprised. But you know, I've probably also cultivated my little social circle to be a, a friendly and safe place there. But I hear mostly good reactions from folks and folks in communities and then isolated horror stories. So Yes. And we know everyone's experience with this is going to be different depending upon where they live in the cultural climate that is around them and also the intersection of other identities and so forth that they have. There is all different kinds of factors that can play a role here. But I have seen a noticeable shift in the field. You know, for example, when I was in graduate school, no one was talking about consensual non-monogamy at all. And all of our theories of relationships that we discussed were all based on this idea that everyone is or wants to be monogamous. And so there just wasn't really even space or opportunity to consider people who might want something other than monogamy. So in the last decade or so, we've seen a lot more progress in this area in terms of acknowledgement of different styles of relationships, more attempts to figure out what are the best ways to approach therapy with people who have diverse relationship styles? So certainly there has been a shift in some way. But if you look at broader public opinion polls in terms of, say, the acceptability of sexually open relationships, you still find that there's a lot of bias against anything other than being monogamous. The attitudes do seem to be changing, but kind of outside of this bubble of our field, I think they're changing at a, at a slower rate, I would say. Now, despite the fact that consensual non-monogamy does seem to be gaining more social acceptance, there's still a lot of stigma, as I mentioned. And some people who are in sexually open relationships feel a lot of shame about that and tend to be very selective when it comes to who they disclose their relationship status to because there's a fear of discrimination. However, if you look at research comparing monogamous and consensually non-monogamous people, what you see is that the consensual non-monogamists tend to be just as satisfied with their relationships on average, if not more so, which tells us that despite this stigma, there's a lot of resilience in this community. So, Michelle, can you tell us about some of the key strengths in CNM populations that seem to provide this protective factor that bolsters these relationships? Sure. You know, one of the pieces I'm really passionate about is positive psychology and strengths of marginalized populations. Uh, and so in working on the book, that was a, a key focus of wanting to integrate some of that work I've done uh, around uh, LGBT populations into CNM. So what was interesting is people don't use the phrase like positive psychology in the literature per se, but what they describe are these strengths, these protective factors, right? If you're familiar with the language of resilience that fit in really, really well, and they overlap 
I would say probably 80 or 85% with strings we see in queer folks really broadly defined. So again, there's something about that willingness or navigating and or that navigating the, the stress of going against the grain with the pervasive social norms, I think, that creates that opportunity for those kinds of pieces of growth. Some of the big pieces, there's, there's evidence for a whole bunch of strengths too, but I think the ones that for me really stuck out to myself uh, really obviously, um, one was really around aspects of social intelligence. So if you think about the emphasis on communication and communicating about your communication and then communicating about that and understanding your emotional experience and responding and understanding partners' emotional experiences, it's classic kind of social-emotional intelligence skills. And so we see throughout the literature, the qualitative, and I think there's just a little bit that might be more quant, is people describe not only having these skills, but also that engaging in CNM, if they were monogamous before, has shifted them to have better communication and kind of better insight about what's going on with folks and how to manage those experiences, particularly around emotions, right? Because there's a lot of, a lot of feels, a lot of feels. So yeah, that's the, that's the key one I think that stands out really interesting. So I might call it in the language of positive psych, I might call it a signature strength of CNM folks is understanding and coping and kind of responding to the emotion piece. And I guess what's interesting about that, it ties in with something you mentioned, which is that the relationship circumstances where if they were previously monogamous, now they're consensually non-monogamous, that has changed the way that they approach, communicate, and think about things. So I think there's often this question of with consensually non-monogamous relationships, is it the people who are drawn to them that kind of are different in some way that might have these unique strengths? Or is it the changing relationship circumstances that kind of forces or compels you to rethink everything? Or is it some combination of the two? Do you have any sense of that as to whether or not these are things people are bringing to the relationship or that the relationship is changing them? This, I think I have the most sense because part of what I do is, is help run a, a nonprofit here in Ohio all around polyamory specifically. And what I noticed is I was like, oh, at least the folks we get who come to physical or virtual meetings, there does tend to be a leaning towards kind of curiosity and openness about themselves and new experiences. So that's kind of that personality. Curiosity is actually another character strength, right? So there is this, I want to learn all these things. I want to understand it. They tend to be I think more nerdy than average, it seems, like folks who want to explore themselves and dive deep. So I think there's the bit of that. But of course, those are the folks who want to come to things. Those are the folks who stay in and continue to engage in consensual non-monogamy. So I, I do think there's a link there with who is most likely to stay in that relationship style and maybe be more out about it and engage in the world about it, which kind of makes sense, right? I would think that might be similar for other kind of marginalized statuses. You've got to be willing to ask yourself some questions that go against the grain. And often they might seek out groups and things like that because they have that curiosity. They're willing to go to this event and that event and read all the books in the world. I think that's probably part of the, the success of the explosion of books on consensual non-monogamy right now as well, is you have, a, you have an audience that's really looking for it. So I think there is some overlap there, more than any other kind of characteristic. Yeah. 
And that's where I think having more longitudinal research on consensually non-monogamous relationships would be really fascinating for kind of teasing apart how people themselves change as a result of being in some type of open relationship versus did they have, you know, certain differences in traits to begin with. And there's very limited research on consensual non-monogamy through a longitudinal lens. In fact, I think there's only one study I'm aware of recently that sort of looked at people undergoing the transition from monogamy to consensual non-monogamy. And it was only about a two-month period where they explored this, so not really a lot of opportunity to assess change. But what they found really was that not a lot changed in terms of how they felt about the overall relationship, which I think in and of itself is still an important conclusion because there are a lot of people who just think that consensual non-monogamy can't work or that people only open up relationships when the relationship is failing and not doing well. And so having this work, I think, serves to counteract a lot of the myths and misconceptions and stereotypes about consensual non-monogamy. So research has found that being able to recognize and validate your own personal strengths is important for relationship satisfaction. So why is recognizing and appreciating your own strengths and maybe your partner's strengths too, why is that important for relationships? I think it can really be this building block, like in the spirit of what we're talking about in terms of kind of values in the community. I think it's kind of a part of social intelligence that you can nurture. It's self-understanding. And it's also understanding of partners with the, the goal of what can we do with this? How can we better nurture and use these strengths? So that's one of the things I'm anticipating as we get back to the world of, of polyamory workshops and conferences, I was like, oh my gosh, this would be the funnest thing to take and do. Because I think it does become a, how do we understand each other more deeply? How do we work as a team or a system? Like if that's the vibe of the, the system you have in consensual non-monogamy, and then how do we kind of recognize what we're all good at? I think there's been jokes for a long time. I call it polysourcing, where you get folks together and everybody from a polycule or maybe just in the poly community, everyone's good at something, right? So to bring those strengths to the table to address whether it's a problem or, again, how to work on a larger task together, I think it's really helpful. And I think it kind of can fall into that. You don't necessarily need a therapist to do that. They can be trained in doing that. But it's also something that can be really fit under the kind of self-exploration and group activities. Yeah, I think you're so right that understanding your own strengths is really important. It's not just for consensually non-monogamous relationships, but for any relationship. Understanding how you tend to approach and think about things and how that might be different from the way that your partner or partners approach things. And then also understanding what it is that you want and need right now. You know, being really in touch with yourself and your own needs and understanding how you tend to process things is super important for any type of relationship. And the more of that self-understanding we have, I think the better equipped we'll be to manage and navigate problems and conflicts that come up because inevitably they will. You know, there are no relationships that are free completely of conflict. And in fact, what we see in the research is that in relationships where there's total conflict avoidance, they don't actually tend to work out all that well. It's actually good to fight a little bit and to have those disagreements and to figure out ways to work through them because that's how the relationship grows and evolves over time. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen that. I've experienced that firsthand. And certainly I, I see that among clients and other folks in the community as well. Absolutely. 
So we've talked about identifying your strengths as one helpful way of maintaining happy and healthy, consensually non-monogamous relationships. But what are some other tips or advice you'd offer in terms of how to navigate these relationships? Well, I think that depends, like in terms of kind of strength-informed approaches or just big, broad, I guess, lessons and observations. I'm curious what you're, what you're most interested in. All of the above. I mean, so we can talk about this in two ways. One is what is some way that people can identify what their strengths are and then use that to better approach their relationships. And then separately, we can talk about just general overarching advice you might give in terms of how to navigate consensual non-monogamy. One of the tools that I've stumbled upon, which I love because it's broadly available online and again, can be used by folks who are in mental health or coaching roles or things like that, but folks can use as their own resource. So there's a measure called the values in action, which is a measure of strengths based in positive psychology. You can find it online. They actually kind of self-score it for you to find your top strengths. What I love about that with descriptions, very, very easy, relatively quick and free is that it's intentionally just focused on strengths. So it's not comparing yourself to others. It is for you. What is the skills and abilities that you are better at, how your mind works, right? So it's very self-based. And one of the activities I saw, it was a grad student who loves work on strengths who turned me on to it. And there was a book on using character strengths. And one of the, the things they suggested, there's all these little activities that are things you can do with yourself or like in a clinical setting. But one of the activities that they described was actually to use with, with partners or with like families of origin to make a genogram of everyone's strengths and to actually like display it on your wall with a description. So when there's a problem or a challenge, you can look at like who, who what does this person have to bear? Like, let's look at this description of that and what that entails. And let's kind of draw in our resources to figure out how we can work together and how you can reach out to somebody who just might have. So I'm thinking about Another one that comes up a lot is the strength of integrity, which is all about being true to yourself and being authentic to who you are. So if somebody's having difficulty expressing themselves, right, or finding their words or setting a boundary, right, a partner that has really strong integrity might be able to kind of illustrate or kind of coach them through, well, this is how I do it and this is what it looks like. Like, what do you really care about? What's really the bottom line? And I loved it because I could see it as almost like a family therapy intervention, although I'm not a family therapist but also as like a fun activity you can do with a giant chalkboard wall and your polycule of like, who's good at what, right? And oh, I didn't realize that about you. That makes sense. But how do we apply it to this situation? Or, you know, fun things too. Like I, uh, when I'm planning the book and I'm, I'm planning a party for the book that I was going to have and two of my partners just volunteered to basically cater it. And I was like, oh, the people who cook the best, who, right? That's the one thing they could offer. I'm like, I'm literally polysourcing this party because they're wonderful about creating when it comes to food and beverage. And they love to just bring that in and like one thing less for me to worry about, right? So I love that idea of kind of creating this diagram to illustrate the strengths that you always have them in mind of like, who could be good at what and how could we integrate these together? I really like that term polysourcing. And, you know, this gets at something I've talked about on the podcast many times, which is that in monogamous relationships, there's often this big expectation that your partner is going to be able to meet any and all needs that you're ever going to have over the course of your life. And so you're putting so much 
pressure, so many expectations on one person. And this is one of the advantages of consensual non-monogamy, one of the unique things about it, which is this opportunity for diversified need fulfillment, where you can sort of outsource different needs to different partners based on their expertise and their strengths. And so that can be one of the ways that consensual non-monogamy can be very fulfilling for a lot of people is that it creates all of these additional avenues and opportunities to seek support and to meet different needs. And it's not to say that you can't do this in a monogamous relationship, just that it's going to have to be in a somewhat different way. And you might need to lean on certain friends more to meet different kinds of needs and maybe not expect your partner to be your best friend, right? So, you know, it's something where every relationship has its own unique challenges in terms of how to navigate it. And every relationship has its own unique advantages, but you got to figure out the right blend of all of that for you and make it work with your circumstances. So what are some other tips and advice you'd offer in terms of how do you navigate consensually non-monogamous relationships? I think some of the biggest things I've seen, you know, in a whole bunch of levels, especially over time in these communities, over now it's well over a decade in these communities, folks are just, when they're new to consensual non-monogamy, often there's this like really heightened excitement and they just want to jump in and immediately start dating like five people if they, you know, and I, I don't know this, this, what I've seen and what I've experienced is I think there's a real value in taking a lot of time for kind of that self-exploration about like, what are your core values? What are your core boundaries? What do you really want? And I think also maybe naming the, the expectations that you might have. I love the idea and I find it to be true that having multiple partners does kind of allow you not to put all your eggs in one basket with what you want out of intimacy. But I think there still can be this, oh, but if I get enough partners, then all these needs will get fulfilled and through that social, you know, intimate connection. And I, I think there can be a trap there. It can become a little game of Pokemon where you see, oh, I need someone to fix this, compliment this, right? Figure out, yeah, help me figure out how to handle A and B and C. And so I think there's just an eagerness to jump in really quickly to relationships. And that I'll often see and hear stories of folks that they just jumped in with all feet and there was things gone sideways, people get hurt, things, hard lessons they learned really early on. And I always think about, wow, I feel like there's a way. It's never going to be avoided, right? But um, a mindful approach to kind of entering this world, I think, would be helpful with folks. There's not a lot, which is interesting, and I don't see it a lot. But like, I do wonder whether there's an untapped market for folks in terms of therapy or maybe folks who are more in coaching doing this too, of like the work they need to do for themselves and within themselves to kind of be ready to have the most satisfying relationships they want. I feel like I feel like that's the maybe one of the target markets for a lot of folks doing coaching or particularly around consensual non-monogamy. But as a, as a therapist, I'm like, I'm eager to do that work, but th those folks don't often show up my way, at least here in Ohio. And I go, what a, oh, that would be such an exciting journey to be on, I think, with a client. It's like, what do I need to know and understand? What do I need to confront? Where do I need to be so that I am most able to have kind of a healthy relationship and healthy connection with folks. Because whatever you have going on, it is going to get stirred up through consensual non-monogamy probably multiple times. 
Yeah. And I, I feel like a lot of folks learn that lesson the hard way and often they'll grow and learn, but can be kind of stressful. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, my next question was actually going to be about what do you need to know if you're thinking about embarking on a journey of exploring consensual non-monogamy for the first time? And I think you covered that pretty well in terms of, hey, there's a lot of questions you need to ask yourself first. You know, it all goes back to that self-understanding, self-discovery, being in touch with what you need so that you can cultivate the type of relationship that is right for you at this particular stage of life. And if you don't ask yourself these questions, then you might wander about aimlessly and end up in some situations that aren't good or healthy for you or for your partner. So self-understanding, I think, is really key. And there are therapists who are willing to work with you. There are workshops out there that you can take. So if you don't know where to start, you can explore those. There are also a lot of great books like The Ethical Slut and Opening Up and so forth that can also kind of help you along that journey to figure it out. So invest some time, do that research to figure out where it is that you want to go. And I think I also love your piece of advice about you don't want to do Pokemon polyamory. <laughs> I've never heard that term before, but it makes a lot of sense, right? You don't need to go out and catch them all right away, you know, and find somebody who's going to meet every single one of your needs. You have to recognize and be practical here that any given relationship is a lot of work and it's going to add complexity to your life. And so if you're adding a bunch of partners, a bunch of relationships at the same time, it can become overwhelming very quickly. So I often give the same advice to people when it comes to acting on sexual fantasies, which is to start low, go slow, take some time to explore and figure out what works and what doesn't for you, because you don't want to get into this situation where you're over your head and people end up getting hurt. I also think about too, another compliment to that in, in terms of, you know, entering or starting kind of consensual non-monogamy is the way you're approaching relationships is also thinking about what you have to give. I mean, that's, I think, where strengths can come in there, although that didn't didn't show up in the book chapter, but it seems like a good idea right now, right? Like knowing yourself in terms of what am I good at? What do I have to offer, right? You know, that it's not just how do I get my needs fulfilled, but like who might I be really compatible with on their end, right? What you might know from your friendships and other relationship history just to kind of, you know, encourage the, you know, the most successful matching, right? It's not a perfect science, but I always think that's really useful. Sometimes folks will go, oh, I just have, I might have a connection with this person, right? We have something in common, they're local, whatever it is. And then how challenging it is to go, oh, do we each have something that would be positive and healthy for the other, right, as well? As you're discussing this, I'm thinking about how this is one of the things that is just often lacking in online dating profiles in general. People spend a lot of time talking about what they're looking for in somebody else and not a lot talking about what can I offer and bring to the relationship. And I think a lot of us end up underselling ourselves. And I think there's a reason for it. You know, when we talk too much about ourselves if you go on too long, it can come across as being self-absorbed and all of these other sorts of things. And the general rule of thumb that I've seen when you're writing an online profile is to do it about 70% what you're looking for and 30% or so about you. And so you've got sort of this blend of information and material because when you go too extreme on one end or the other, then it just doesn't really give the other person a full sense of you. And so spending that time to figure out 
what it is that you want, what you can offer, and also what you're looking for so that you can communicate and convey that. I think you're right. It's absolutely going to help people to find better matches. And if it's something you're struggling with, like you don't know what to say about yourself, you don't know what your strengths are, talk to your friends, talk to the people who know you well, because they can often help you to identify strengths that maybe you don't even realize about yourself. Yeah, that's what I love too. And I think that also is integrated into one of the activities we described from some of the work on positive psychology is, yeah, the folks, the folks close to you might be the best at identifying and describing your strengths. I know I find this whenever I try to teach clinicians to assess strengths when I teach first year students in their interviewing class. And we have a little bit of time where we talk about strengths and I go, and here's what's going to happen. You're going to ask clients about that. and They're going to go, I don't have strengths. That's why I'm in therapy. Right. And they often need an other perspective or someone to really reflect and name what they see in them that are their strengths. So that's sometimes that's the therapist doing that. That might be partners, that be other friendships and connections in their life. But that can be wonderfully affirming and positive, too. Is So maybe seeing being able to see strengths in other people might need to be a strength in and of itself. I don't know if there's a word for that. Right. I think that's a skill that's really useful. And sometimes you see it through folks' behaviors. I think the folks that that you are close to, you're most able to do that. Absolutely. Now, you've done a lot of work around helping to equip therapists with what they need to know when it comes to treating consensually non-monogamous clients. So what are the most common issues that come up in sex and relationship therapy with people who are in sexually open relationships? So I don't do relationship therapy per se. I'm trained as an individual therapist, trained in sex therapy, although most of what I do is individual therapy, right? So that's the piece of like some of that I know academically and some of that I know and I see in the work I do or in the work I supervise with clients. So most common issues that come up that might kind of overlap, I think, with sexuality per se. I work with a lot of folks and supervised a lot of cases where there are folks really struggling to basically disclose to a partner or potential partner what they really want, whether that's kink, open relationships, that like, how do I start this conversation about something they know is stigmatized in their life and in the world when they have a partner that they're really not sure if they're going to be open to it or interested, right? That 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 can be very vulnerable and and threatening because what if is this is really important. I really need this. This is essential. And there's somebody they feel a connection to that says, I'm out. I can't do that. That's, that's not in the realm of possibility. So I hear that a lot and the fears around that. Yeah. And that's something I hear a lot too, as a sexual fantasy researcher, you know, people have all of these things, these ideas that turn them on. And sometimes they're things that they actually want to do and try out. And how do you communicate that to a partner? Because a lot of times there is that internal feeling of shame, or there's that concern about being judged for your wants or desires or your fantasies. And so it can be a tricky thing to navigate. And it's part of where having a therapist can help you to work through a lot of those issues. And sometimes it starts with first unpacking the shame for yourself, right? I think you have to get good with yourself before you can 
be open and vulnerable with your partners because if you don't feel good about your turn-ons or what it is that you want to try then when you go to communicate that or express that to a partner it's going to come out as sort of like this ball of anxiety and might not lead to the most productive conversation and if your partner kind of gets this sense or feeling that you're not even comfortable with it then you know where is that going to go so yeah taking that time to to figure out to get good with yourself i think is really important really crucial in talking about this and in terms of you know other sorts of issues that might come up in sexually open relationships one that we've talked about on the show before is that jealousy sometimes emerges and i think there are a lot of people who say that jealousy isn't really a thing in consensually non-monogamous relationships, right? We feel compersion instead. We're happy. We take pleasure in our partner's pleasure. But what we've learned is that jealousy and compersion are two different things, and you can experience both at the same time. And it may be that you don't experience jealousy now, but maybe jealousy will set in at some point later. And so if you haven't sort of worked on how you're going to deal with that, if and when it does arise, then it can be this big relationship challenge. So in any type of relationship, there can be issues that arise. And I think that's really where being able to find and identify a therapist who can help you work through that is really important. But as we discussed at the top of the show, if most therapists are trained under this model that presumes monogamy is the ideal relationship state, that makes it hard to find an affirming therapist if you're consensually non-monogamous. So what's your advice to people who are consensually non-monogamous in terms of where to find a competent therapist? There's a couple resources. So, so an existing resource that's been around much longer is something called Polyfriendly Professionals that isn't just limited to therapists. But that was the first and only resource I found that was just focused for at least polyamorous folks to find folks across service professionals who were affirming to them. Those are those are all you know the provider is saying that they're affirming and knowledgeable, right? There's not credentialing services that are national. There's there's several organizations that are doing more intensive workshops and trainings for certificates. But now those two, I think those two probably the largest areas where people can go online and search to provide licensed providers. And I think both of them allow licensed providers of all kind of mental health professions. One of them might just be psychologists, but they can go in and, and find folks who have kind of opted in to say, this is an area of focus, which I think is uh, accomplishment I think we made in the past year, which was really great. So I didn't do the advocacy on that. I'm going to defer that to Dr. Heath Cheshinger with the uh, the always support of Dr. Amy Morris, who are the co-chairs of that committee. But they did a lot of work, a lot of emails, and a lot of communication to make that happen and to try to make it as functional as possible. I could talk even more about jealousy and compersion too. That might take us on a sidetrack because that's some of my most recent scholarship. I'm super excited to be able to contribute to making a measure of compersion that came out, gosh, last year and understanding that phenomenon, and you're right, totally often coexists with jealousy, like feels or feels. And then the, I'm, I find it really fascinating that people want to put those in different camps as opposites and label one as good and one as bad. I think there's a lot more resources, especially that therapists have for helping folks learn how to emotionally regulate and tolerate and kind of take some of the sting out of big feelings. So I think that's also a topic a lot of folks might seek out therapy for. It just hasn't been too common in my practice for whatever reason. <laughs> Not yet. Well, I appreciate you sharing all of that. And I think 
first shout out to Dr. Heath Schechinger, who was a previous guest on the podcast. And he's done so much important work in this area in terms of advocacy for consensually non-monogamous relationships. And, you know, it is really hard to believe that it was really only in the last year or two that we now have on a lot of these therapist locator tools, the option or opportunity to search for somebody who is CNM affirming, right? So this is a very new, very recent thing, but I think it signifies progress in terms of more recognition of these relationships, more opportunities and avenues to find help. But there's still clearly a lot more work to be done, especially in the area of training, because you kind of have to find a niche therapist who has gone out of their way to get training in this area if you want to find somebody who can specifically help you address the issues in your particular relationship circumstances. So that's where it's really important for us to do more work and to change the training programs so that they are more in encompassing of diversity. I also appreciate what you share about jealousy and conversion. Fascinating topics, so much work to explore there. But let me just ask one question about jealousy. So what can you do if jealousy emerges in your consensually non-monogamous relationship in order to most effectively deal with that emotion. You know, I think there are a lot of people who just try and suppress it or pretend like it doesn't exist. And we know that suppression is not a healthy way of dealing with anything. So what might be a healthier way of working through that particular issue? A lot of the kind of recommendations and that are in general for jealousy, but I think they specifically get discussed at length for CNM is really some skills that are often used for kind of strong emotions and manage them tend to be mindfulness-based skills, right? So first, that it's there, the jealousy is real, that you're feeling it, right? So I think acknowledging it to yourself, and again, that doesn't make you a bad person, right? So there might be some cognitive work separating, like I have this feeling versus I'm a jealous person. But what's often been suggested that I've seen in that lit is really learning those mindfulness skills to be able to go, I'm having a feeling, I'm not the feeling. And it's a lot of stuff that comes from emotional regulation work that gets really well integrated into a lot lot of clinicians are trained in things like dialectical behavioral therapy and other kind of emotion regulation skills. This is an emotion. It's the same kind of set of skills, just the same as they might have irritation or frustration that what skills therapists might find most useful there. So I think that's really useful as well. And I think also a lot of the the other piece is really analyzing some of that social programming about like jealousy is bad and only certain types of people feel jealousy, that it says something about you or about your relationship if you feel it. And that it might be just kind of hardwired into your brain from social settings or previous relationship dynamics and things like that. So I think there's some unlearning with that too, about how monogamous culture kind of sets that up and really reinforces that. Yeah, I love everything that you said there, and especially this idea that people tend to think that if you're feeling jealous, especially in the context of a sexually open relationship, it makes you a bad person in some way that you're not supposed to experience those feelings. And I think some degree of jealousy is kind of normal, right, in terms of being a human emotion that exists. And it's okay to feel jealous, but you need to find a way to work through that. Not all jealousy is pathological. It doesn't have to mean the end of your relationship. 
You just have to find a way to deal with it. And I think that really starts with, as you said, acknowledging that emotion and then figuring out a way to feel secure in your relationship. And so it might involve more communication with your partner about what are the right rules, boundaries, conditions for us to have this relationship? What do I need to feel secure? What do you need? And finding a way to kind of meet somewhere in the middle. Jealousy can be overcome and dealt with in consensually non-monogamous relationships. It might always be there to some extent, but you have to find some way to manage or navigate it. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Michelle. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of the handbook when it comes out? Sure. Well, it's pretty easy to Google me. My main work I guess people can follow me on Twitter if they would like. I'm semi-active there for more of a list of my research work. I mean, that's available on Google Scholar, which folks are familiar with. And then the the Right State page, you can put in my name and get a copy of my CV if that's if that's the kind of excitement you're looking for in your life at wright.edu. And the, the book will be out mid-July from Roman and Littlefield. It's also on Amazon as the Handbook of Consensual Non-Monogamy, Affirming Mental Health Practice. And we're super excited about that. We are super excited as well. And I'll be sure to include links to everything in the show notes. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a minute to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.